A few weeks after the surgery, I remember feeling super sad and unmotivated, just in pain and feeling I'm never going to be active. I'm not going to be able to see my kids do cool things. I'm going to be the guy who's, I can't go do that type of stuff. And that was the moment that I remember thinking, what in the world is happening? This, This can't be who I am. So from that moment on, I've been on an uphill journey and hope to never have to revisit that valley because those were some dark days for sure. Hello and welcome to the September 22nd, 2023 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. There's quite a bit to talk about before we get to the program today, as a lot has happened since the last show. Let's begin first with a discussion of the Men's Ironman World Championship that was held in Nice, France, just about two weeks ago. Much as I had predicted, this was a heck of an event on a very difficult and very much worthwhile of a World Championship course. From everything that I've heard, both from what I've read and from speaking to people who participated, Nice more than lived up to its potential. Travel to and from the region was a breeze, accommodations were plentiful and significantly more reasonable than what can be found in Hawaii, the people of Nice were thrilled to have the race there and put on a terrific show, and by the time all was said and done, it seemed that not too many people were complaining. In fact, I don't remember hearing any complaints about any of it at all. I almost wonder, in fact, if that wasn't the sound of some quiet admissions that maybe just maybe, Iron Man just might have gotten this one right. As for the race itself, Sam Laidlaw was incredible, charging ahead on the bike and never looking back. After a really difficult year for him, I for one was happy to see that he could finish and take the biggest victory of his career. What Patrick Longa did on the run was also truly remarkable, and Magnus Dietlev continues to establish himself as a real power to be contended with whenever he lines up at the start of a race. The one remaining question, I guess, is whether or not the split event over two locations is a viable world championship strategy for Ironman. I, for one, continue to believe that having a separate day for the women is definitely the way to go, and I also think that Kona simply cannot handle two events in the same year. They're barely happy doing it once. Clearly, triathletes continue to hold the Big Island in their hearts, and the allure of the race there is going to remain entrenched in Ironman lore, so doing a rotation as will be established for at least the next couple of years still seems to me, at least, to be the best option. However, there are issues. The dilution of the quality of the women's age group field is very real and can only be addressed if more women enter the Ironman races, something that continues just not to happen. We are already seeing that women age groupers don't really seem to want to go to Nice, at least in the couple of American races that have taken place where slots were rolling very far in the women's field. I don't know if this is because the women prefer a race in Kona to Nice or if they are chastened by the more difficult course that Nice provides. I haven't spoken to anyone who passed on a slot, so I can't really say. I will say that I think it's a shame if anyone thinks that Nice is anything less than a worthy world championship venue, because after what we saw a couple of weeks ago, it seems very clear that nothing could be further from the truth. The other major sporting story that I want to touch on is not from the world of triathlon, but rather from professional cycling. Colorado's own Sepp Kuss won the Vuelta a España last weekend, and it was a remarkable achievement, not just for him, but for what can only be regarded as the most impressive cycling team ever put together. We are witnessing what can really only be described as absolute dominance of professional cycling by the Jumbo Visma team. Winners of all three Grand Tours in 2023, those same three cyclists locked up the podium at the Vuelta, finishing first, second, and third as well, as if to put an exclamation mark on what can only be seen as an incredible dream season. I know that there was some controversy on one of the later stages of the Vuelta, when Jonas Vingegaard and Primoz Roglic seemingly attacked Sepp Kuss on one of the final climbs of the day, but was there really ever any doubt that they would work together in order to get Kuss to Madrid in red? 
No way was this a gift. Cruz very much earned his victory, and he will forever be remembered for his class and the way he comported himself during the three weeks. And next year, when he is again supporting Vingegaard or Roglic, he will now not just be a super domestique, but rather a Grand Tour rider, Grand Tour winner, doing so in his own right. And how great is that? I guess it's really only too bad that the only time Americans pay attention to cycling is when one of their own is winning. I'm glad that Kuz's victory is bringing cycling some much-deserved attention stateside, but I can't help but wonder whether or not it will last, and why in the world people wouldn't care otherwise. Cycling has so much drama and excitement, it seems perfectly suited for a market like the United States. They don't know what they've been missing. On the show today, the medical mailbag follows up on a discussion that we had last episode on hypothermia, with a discussion on managing training and racing in the heat. It's been a record-breaking summer in the Northern Hemisphere for temperatures, and science is providing some novel ways to keep cool while exercising. Coach Juliet Hawkman and I will look at how you can leverage some of these novel hacks to perform your best when the mercury climbs, and that's coming up shortly. Later, my guest on the podcast today is not a pro triathlete, but rather a regular old age grouper, just like you and me. Except, that is, that Dylan Davison is maybe a little less than all of us because he has no stomach. Dylan has a genetic predisposition towards developing fatal stomach cancer, and so at the age of 31, he had his stomach completely removed in order to dodge this terrible disease. Still, he wanted to participate in triathlons, and this coming weekend is going to race in the Ironman Chattanooga, to his knowledge, as the first ever athlete to complete an Ironman without a stomach. He spoke to me about his journey and what it means to train and race without a complete gastrointestinal tract, and that's coming up a little later on. Before all of that, I want to take a moment to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they could sign up to support this program and in doing so get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month or so. Most recently, I released just such an episode that went into further detail on the gut microbiome, expanding on what was covered on a regular segment a few episodes ago. That bonus episode and other bonus episodes like it are available on a private feed for all my subscribers. Plus, for North American subscribers who sign up at the $10 per month level of support, you will receive a special thank you gift in the form of a Boco TriDoc podcast running hat. So I hope that you'll visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash TriDoc podcast and become a supporter so that you too can get access and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, I thank you in advance just for considering. It's time again for the Medical Mailbag, that uh, segment of the program, when I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Juliet Hockman. Juliet, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Uh, last time on the program, we discussed uh, the question that was sent in by Xenia Parker, who asked about a incident she had with a friend of hers who got cold during a swim, and we had a, a good discussion about hypothermia. But this time, we're going to go the other way. We're going to take the pendulum the other way. Juliet, what are we going to talk about on this episode segment? Yeah, well, it's interesting. There's a lot of chatter on a bunch of forums online and, and just within our athlete group about boy, there were some hot races this summer. And it seems like, well, we know that the planet is getting hotter all the time and we're going to have to continue to battle with this issue of our races, all of our races just getting warmer and warmer. And it's interesting the different strategies that are being discussed out there about how to stay cool during these races. So the question is really just what is happening to our bodies when we overheat during a race and how does that impact performance? And what can we do to make sure that we keep our bodies cool, to keep our bodies safe, and to earn the performance that our training would indicate when it's we get a really hot racing day. Yeah, it's uh, a real sign of the times, isn't it? This year, we've seen record-breaking temperatures across the Northern Hemisphere throughout the summer, and our friends in the Southern Hemisphere are about to enter into the hottest time of the year for them. We have friends who live in Melbourne and in Australia, and they're really going to be feeling it as we come into their summer months, and they start to have races that are also going to put them at risk if they see the same kinds of temperatures that we saw. 
I like to use a metaphor, and the metaphor that I've used throughout my career in medicine when I try to explain this to medical students, residents, and even the lay public is to think about an automotive kind of metaphor. It's one that makes a lot of sense, and it's kind of easy to kind of picture. So think about your car and about how when you start your car, it, it takes a little while to warm up before it really starts running well. And our bodies are kind of the same. When we get to our training session, when we get to a race, we're cool and we're not going to optimally perform until we get things warmed up. And what we're doing in both situations, our car burns fuel and that fuel is is principally being used to propel the car forward. But a lot of the energy that is expended when the fuel is burnt is inefficiently wasted and it's wasted in the form of heat. Now, it turns out that your car actually operates at a best at a higher temperature so that heat at first serves a good purpose. It heats up the engine block, allows for everything to work properly. And in our own bodies, the same thing is happening. We're burning whatever fuel it is that we're using initially, carbohydrates, fat, protein, whatever it is, and Some of that energy is being used to propel us forward in locomotion, but a lot of it is being expended as heat. We start to warm up our muscles, and at that point, things will start to tip over and get us overheated unless we have a way of removing that thermal energy that we're generating from the muscles and then get rid of it into the atmosphere. And so we have a very complex processes of doing that that are similar to what happens in a car. So in a car... The first thing we have is we have a sensor. We have a temperature sensor, which tells different components within the car when the engine is running at the optimal temperature. And if it's running too hot, it then kicks into, into, it kicks into gear a bunch of different steps to remove heat. And the first thing it does is it turns on a pump. And a pump is then going to circulate coolant through hoses into the engine block. That coolant moves into the engine block. It gets heated up, taking away some of that thermal energy, which then transports it through other hoses to the radiator. And the radiator is essentially a large metal grid that has an enormous amount of surface area and the fluid is dispersed through the radiator so that it is exposed to a large amount of air that's moving from the atmosphere over the radiator. The radi- the, the fluid is then cooled by that air moving over it and the fluid then moves back into hoses that return to the pump and the whole process begins anew. Well, our body contains many of the same components. The thermal sensor, or the temperature sensor, is our hypothalamus located in the brainstem. When the hypothalamus detects that our internal core temperature is getting hot, it tells our heat pump, the heart basically, to start pumping harder, to pump our coolant fluid, which is the blood, in larger volumes to the areas that have higher temperatures, essentially the muscles. So the the pump in the automotive metaphor is our heart. The hoses are our blood vessels. The coolant is our blood. And the radiator, well, that's our skin. And so our skin has quite a bit of surface area. And when the blood comes back from the muscles, it's heated to a, a certain amount, it gets into the skin, our, our capillaries within the skin dilate. You can see when people are really hot and they're trying to cool down, they become flushed. That's because blood is rushing into all these small blood vessels to be exposed to the air that's circulating over the skin. The, the air then cools that blood so it can then return to the heart, get pumped to the muscles, and everything begins anew. So you could see how the automotive metaphor works pretty well to describe how we dissipate heat. Now, there are a couple of other things that we can do with human physiology to dissipate heat even better. One of them is we sweat. And when you provide liquid on the surface of the skin, that increases the efficiency of removing heat on the, I think it's in the, in the range of 10 times. Dry skin will be efficient in shedding heat, but wet skin does so much more efficiently. I think it's in the order of magnitude more. And another thing is wind. If you have air that's moving over the skin as opposed to air that's just sitting still, then you also enhance the removal of heat. So, which is why we things- like fans set up around our trainer. When we are working in the, in the trainer in the winter. Okay. Yeah. And the way you could think about that is just like the air, if the air is still, 
then you heat the air up next to your skin, but then that air doesn't get circulated and it'll just sit there and it, it won't feel quite as cool. But when air is moving continuously, it takes advantage of a physical process called uh, convection. So you may be familiar with convection ovens. It's exactly the same thing. When you are circulating air over something to cool it or to heat it, it's much more efficient if that air is circulating rather than just sitting still. So that's how it's the same premise, be it for cooling or heating. So those are the ways that we can cool ourselves better. And we then have to think about, okay, well, we're out there, it's it's a hot day. So uh, what are the things that we can do to try and keep ourselves cool when we're exercising? Because we know that as we start to increase our effort, we are burning more and more fuel. We are exerting ourselves harder and harder. We are therefore generating more and more heat. And our bodies have a limit at how much we're going to be able to remove that heat. And those limits can be exacerbated by any kind of diseases that affect any of the heart, the blood, or the skin. So if you have impaired cardiovascular function, then your pump is going to be limited in terms of how much blood it's going to be able to pump to the muscles and to the skin. If you have skin diseases like psoriasis, then the skin becomes less able to shed heat because it doesn't work as efficiently. And of course, if you have diseases of the blood vessels like atherosclerosis, then the, the hoses become clogged and it's you're less efficient at being able to move blood to the muscles and then to the skin itself. So there's all kinds of ways to imagine how heat dissipation can be impaired. But what we're really interested in is how can we make it better? So what we wanted to principally the way that we can make our ability to lose heat better is to leverage the physiologic processes that we already have. So that's going to mean exposing as much skin as is legally possible in a race. So remember <laughs> our friend, yep. Matt Sharp, Matt knows, Sharp. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> right? keep, keep the, keep the front of your Jersey zipped up at least partially, yep. but if you can open it a little bit, then you should, because keeping that skin, we textiles, unfortunately are great insulators. Even the, even the stay cool black that you see a lot of fabrics advertising, all that means is it doesn't heat up from sunlight, but it doesn't necessarily cool your skin in any to any degree. Textiles are insulators and any skin that's covered is not going to com is not going to work well to to remove heat from your body. The one way that you can impact textile function and to, to help skin that's covered get rid of heat is to make it wet. So pouring water over your clothing, wetting your clothes, uh, that's a great way to then allow that clothing to make use of evaporative function. So anytime I'm racing in an event that's really hot, I go through an aid station. The first thing I do is I pour water over my hat, pour water all over my shirt, because getting those things wet will allow them to provide a cooling function because they'll stay wet. And as that water evaporates, it takes heat away from you. So that's really and aren't important. There part, and aren't there parts of your body that do an even better job allowing your body to cool down than other parts like your neck or your wrists or your ankles? I'm just throwing these out that if you get those wet and cold, it's even better than other parts of your body. Is that true? It is true, but not the places you've mentioned specifically. So what we're what we're looking for? No, no, it's it's important because I think a lot of people think that a lot of people think that oh, if I put a cold towel on the back of my neck, it feels great. It really does, but it's actually no more efficient at cooling you than putting it, say, on your arm. It just happens to feel really good. There are some places, there's three places essentially where we have what are called arterial venous anastomoses. So what that means is we have blood flow that's very, very high because there's no capillaries. In, but normally, blood flows from large arteries to smaller and smaller arteries until it gets into these tiny, tiny little capillaries. And blood slows down and moves very, very slowly from capillaries into then venules. And then from venules, it collects into small veins and then eventually into larger veins. And as it collects into larger and larger vessels, it begins to speed up again. Well, there are three places in the body where blood flow goes from arteries into smaller, smaller arteries, but it never gets into capillaries. Instead, it just jumps right over into the venous circulation. And because of that, the blood flow never really slows down that much. And so you end up with it, a very enhanced blood flow directly from the arterial to the venous circulation. And those three places are the forehead, the palms of the hands, and the soles of the feet. Okay. And that's partly why it's 
the the forehead is where you can measure temperature. You'll remember as a mom, you would touch your kid's forehead to kind of get a sense of if they whether or not they had a fever. The reason for that is because it actually is a, a relatively good measure of core temperature because the forehead will give you core blood temperature because there's arterial blood flowing very, very quickly through the forehead, through those blood vessels. And so it gives you a good sense of what the core temperature is. Now, that's, if you can- interesting. that's interesting because uh, when I used to row and we had very, very hot workouts or very, very hot races, and you, you come across the finish line and you sort of collapse over your oar. And the first thing you did was pull your feet out of your shoes, which are secured to the boat and put one foot on either side of the boat into the water and you throw your wrists in there too. So that I think it was sort of a natural reaction, but boy, did that cool you down immediately to put your feet and hands into the water like that. So that, that makes sense to me now all these years later. <laughs> yeah, and, and putting your feet into an ice bath after a hard workout feels fantastic, not just because right. your feet are tired and sore, but also because it works really well to cool you feet. down. Okay. And there has been some research that actually shows that this is a very effective way of cooling during exercise. Not so much the feet, of course, because we're often wearing shoes and it's difficult to get to them, but using the hands. There have been studies that have shown, well, there's been studies with some conflicting results. So, for example, they had weightlifters wear cooling gloves. And when these weightlifters wore cooling gloves, they found that they were able to keep their core temperature down a little bit, but they didn't actually perform any better. Alternatively, endurance athletes, runners wearing ice gloves have been shown to perform better. And the reason for it seems to be because they're able to keep their core temperature a little bit more balanced. And so I have suggested to people if they're racing in a hot environment, Kona's coming up just next month. So if you're listening to this and you're heading off to Kona and you're going to be performing there in an environment that is notoriously hot and humid, when you're passing through an aid station, one of the things you could do besides gulping down a lot of water, pouring water on your clothing to keep it wet, grab some ice from the ice station, clench your fists around that ice and just run with it. And having right. that ice in your fists and letting it melt slowly as you go, I mean, it's not going to last for that long, but the, the cooling effect on your blood as it passes through the palms is not insignificant and has been shown to be an effective way of mitigating some of the stresses from the heat. Now, your palms only represent 1% of your total body surface area. So how much cooling you're going to get and whether or not it's going to truly impact your core temperature is hard to say. But these studies have shown that it seems to be enough to actually make a small difference in terms of ability to perform. So I would say go for it. Now, there is another device or product out there that leverages the cooling on the forehead. And that is the not inexpensive Amias headbands, which I know everybody has seen. They've been out there since 2019, mostly on the pros. The, part of the reason for that is because they were given to the pros as kind of a marketing ploy, but also because they're, they are quite expensive. They're $200 for the headband. And yeah, they're very expensive. And, and the reason for that is, and I've had conversations with the developer and the inventor of the Amias. He's a, a lovely man, an engineer from Mexico who has a real passion for developing technology that can help humans adapt to the warming environment. And in talking with him, I, I was quite impressed with the theory and with everything that's gone into this product. And I, I don't mean to endorse the Omnius. I don't have one myself, but I do think it's really interesting technology. And I actually have him coming up as a guest for an interview on the podcast that'll be coming up in the coming months. But with that said, the Omnius is really fascinating technology. It basically takes graphene sheets of graphene, which are incredibly conductive of thermal energy. And it layers it into these pillars. And they're, they're, they're made into these kind of square, these foam squares, and they're applied to the forehead. And the idea is, is that it increases the surface area of your forehead by five times. So hmm. wearing this headband with these little graphite foam squares increases the surface area of your forehead and allows heat that's passing through that arteriovenous anastomosis to then be shed much more efficiently. Now, graphite does not hold water. So what they've done is they've treated 
these graphite squares with a special coating so that they become hydrophilic instead of hydrophobic. So instead of instead of shedding water, the graphite actually holds onto water. And the way the product works is it doesn't shed heat on its own. Instead, you have to keep it wet. And so every time you go through an aid station, you just pour water over the headband, and apparently it cools very, very well. And there's they've done internal studies, and there have been reviews of people who've actually done some interesting temperature studies that have shown that if you wear this device, you can actually cool your forehead quite dramatically compared to the rest of the body. Now, the question again is, does that have any impact on core temperature? Because you know, the forehead represents a very small percentage of your overall body, and therefore blood flow is, uh, the percentage of blood going to the forehead is small. And the 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 developer of the Amias confessed to me. He said, "Look, we we don't have any data that actually shows that core temperature drops with this thing. But what we do theorize, because we have seen performance improvements in the people who wear this, and again, they haven't studied this formally. But what they're theorizing is that keeping the head cool seems to trick the brain." into thinking the body is cool. And they have this notion that there's a hormonal influence through decreased prolactin, which is a stress hormone related to being overheated, that can actually result in people having a, a better ability to perform because their brain is tricked into thinking it, it, that the body's not quite as hot as it actually is, which is pretty interesting. I asked whether or not there was a potential for the person to then overexert themselves because the brain doesn't recognize how hot they are. But he said he did not think that was possible because the hypothalamus is much too difficult to trick in that regard. If, if the person was really going to overheat them, they probably wouldn't be successful that way. So I think okay. it's a really interesting product. So, all right. So if an athlete doesn't want to spend over $200 on a headband, what are some of the other things that they can do to cool during a really hot race? So there's other really good research that was done around the Tokyo Olympics, another famous uh, example of an event that was done under really, really difficult conditions with a lot of heat and phenomenal humidity. And a couple of things that were used there, and I, I mentioned Matt Sharp a little bit earlier, had the good fortune of, of having access to Matt because he's a life sport athlete. And also we've become friends over the last couple of years. And so I was chatting with Matt about what they did in Tokyo around the games where he was a representative of Canada in the triathlon. And he told me that pre-cooling was a big thing that they really emphasized for all the athletes there. So many of the athletes had access to ice vests that they would wear right up until the time of their event. They stayed wet as well, so they would be continuously in uniforms while they were wearing these ice vests. And once they took off the ice vest and they started participating, they would have access to slushies, ice slushies. And I read some really interesting research on this because another place where we see arteriovenous anastomosis is within the gastrointestinal tract, specifically the esophagus. So taking a slurry of ice and water and drinking that does a really good job of cooling down core temperature. And that's mm -hmm. another thing that you can do at aid stations and triathlons. They don't give us slushies. I kind of wish they did because the slushie <laughs> seems to work really well. But what you can do is you can take a mouthful of ice crunch that bad boy up into little chunks of ice and make a little slushy in your mouth and then take a glass of water as well, mix it all together and swallow it. And that'll give mm. you at least a cup full of a slushy. And that has been shown to be very, very effective. So mm -hmm. water over the head, water over the uniform, take a cup full of ice, crunch it all up, mix it with a cup of water. And then at the last as you're running through the aid station, you should be able to grab two more cups of ice that you can then put into your hands and just run with that ice and let it melt as you go. And of course, okay. drinking some water as well as you're going. So, but yeah. you'll get that ice. You'll get that ice slushy. And I mean, I, I say all of this thinking to myself, my gosh, that's a lot to do in an aid station. But I was watching a video today of some of the pros making their way through aid stations, and they're running much faster than we are. And they get a lot of this done. I mean, it's amazing. They're incredibly efficient by grabbing multiple mm -hmm. cups from each person, and some of it over the head, some of it down the mouth, and a lot of it over their back. I mean, it's it's amazing how much they get done. And right. it's hard to practice this stuff because it's hard to set up your own aid station. But if you do enough of these races, it's it's not too hard to imagine how you could get pretty good at doing this. And then listen, 
Chelsea Sodaro walked all the aid stations in Kona last year and still won. So right. if you have to walk the aid stations in order to manage your temperature, then that's what you got to do. Right. Yeah. What about, I remember at the rowing world championships in Korea, oh, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, so, so hot. And I watched a lot of the athletes from different countries warm up and then cool down in ice vests. What do you think about ice vests? Are those even legal during competition? Yeah. So I mentioned that, that that's something that Matt Sharp told me about in Tokyo. Yeah. They used ice vests as pre-cooling. And that is something that we see a lot of athletes doing. The problem is, is they're, they're impractical for use in triathlon. Most of the time when we start our races, it's 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 cool in the mornings. I mean, even in Kona, it's not that hot right, when we right. start. So wearing an ice vest, wearing an ice vest before the swim is probably not really helpful. And once you get to the bike and the run, putting an ice vest on is not going to be very helpful because number one, it's heavy. Number two, it's not going to stay ice for long. And then what are you going to do with it? Right. So I, I haven't seen anything that bans it necessarily, okay. but I just don't see it as being a, a necessarily practical solution. We are seeing okay. a lot of people put bottles down their jersey these days. That seems to be the, the up and coming thing. And if you yep. froze that bottle and put it down your jersey, mm-hmm. I, I could see that being a very uh, practical solution and one way to keep cool. Yep. Yep. Okay. And then what about what athletes can do in advance of competition to prepare their bodies for a super hot race? You, we know a lot about heat adaption training in the two or three weeks before a race like Kona, for example, or another really, a really hot event. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and something that I've spent a lot of time researching and there is, I would like to say there's no substitute, but fortunately there is a substitute, but, but the best thing still is if you can get to the environment that you're going to be racing in uh, two weeks in advance and actually spend time training in that environment, that remains the single best way. And that was something that Matt talked about too. They all went to Tokyo. They all trained in that environment for a couple of weeks before the game so that they had time to adapt. And what your body does when you're exposed to those kinds of conditions is your body actually retains more water, retains more salt, and actually decreases your sweat rate. So you go through a lot of physiologic adaptations to be able to perform in a hotter environment. And putting yourself in that environment for at least two weeks beforehand is the best way to get those adaptations to happen. Now, not all of us are able to take that time off. Not all of us are able to travel to that area. I know for myself, when I was training for Kona in both 2018 and 2022, Colorado was pretty cool in September. And so I didn't really have that opportunity. And a lot of people are going from cooler climates when they go to Kona. So what you can do instead is make use of a sauna protocol. And there are various protocols that have been described. Some of them are honestly a little bit ridiculous. I've seen protocols talking about sitting in a sauna for 45 minutes or an hour. And these are like 40 degree Celsius saunas, which are insanely hot. That's just not possible. I I don't think anybody has that kind of time, nor do they have the ability to sit there without overheating and getting potentially sick. I have found studies that have suggested much shorter protocols are just as effective. And what I have done is build myself up over a period of two to three weeks before a race. I'll start with a wet sauna, especially most of my races are in humid environments and I live in a very dry environment. So I like to build up my tolerance to humidity. So I'll start in a wet sauna for, I can usually start at about 10 minutes, maybe 15. And then once I sort of reach my capacity, I'll move over to the dry sauna for another five or 10 minutes. And I'll I'll increase that time in both of those every single day until I get to about a half an hour. And usually that's spent 20 minutes in wet, 10 minutes in dry. And I always bring a bottle with me, a bottle of ice water, usually with an electrolyte thing in there. So I'm getting some salt. And I just sit in that sauna 20 minutes wet, 10 minutes dry. And I do that every single day. It usually takes me the first week just to build up to that half an hour. But then for two weeks before my race, I'm in there every single day. And I usually do it after my workouts. And I have found that to be really, really helpful. When I showed up at Kona, I noticed like I was not sweating as much as I normally do. I found that it was easier to walk around. I was more comfortable. Once I started actually exercising, obviously, I still sweated. I still felt the heat, but I did find it more manageable. And I recommend that protocol to everyone. And there are some serious consequences to overheating. We should probably spend just a little time on that because 
there's obviously the, the the dehydration. So it's very important to keep yourself hydrated. It's very important to replace sodium losses. You can't just replace your water losses. You have to get electrolytes as well. Uh, but the, the other thing is, is that heat exhaustion is a very serious and potentially fatal problem that can develop if, it, if, if your body starts overheating and it's left unchecked. The first thing that you'll notice is you'll stop sweating. And if any time you're out there exerting yourself and you stop sweating, it's time to get very nervous and to stop what you're doing and really take care of yourself because you must get rehydrated. If you stop sweating, it means that your body's going to start to overheat very, very quickly. And when that happens, you could start to see damage to your internal organs, specifically the liver and then the brain. And if you get to that point, it can be very, very dangerous. So you don't want that to happen. So always monitor yourself, make sure you're continuing to sweat. And as long as you're continuing to sweat, as long as you're thinking clearly and not having any significant discomfort, you should be okay to keep going. This, of course, assumes that the environmental temperatures are reasonable, not like what we've seen in Arizona this past summer. And then the other last thing I want to touch on is nutrition. A lot of people report and for good reason that when it becomes hot, they have trouble processing their nutrition and that leads to all kinds of trouble. And there's really only one reason for that. And that is because when we are exerting ourselves in the heat, something like whatever cardiac output is not going to our muscles to keep us moving forward, the rest of it is all going to our skin. And so the first thing that gets cut off is blood flow to our gastrointestinal tract. And once the gastrointestinal tract gets cut off from blood flow, then you stop absorbing nutrition, you stop emptying your stomach, and everything goes downhill. And so that's why it's so incredibly important to be aware of how you're feeling. And the second you start to feel any kind of bloating or nausea, it's time to pull it back a little bit. Because if you pull back on the effort, then what will happen is you will stop generating as much heat, you will stop needing to send as much blood flow to your skin, you will reestablish blood flow to your gastrointestinal tract, you'll start absorbing nutrition again, and you'll be able to get back on track. But the only way to do that, well, there's two ways. Number one, prevent it from beginning in the first place. And the second is, the sec- is as soon as you start noticing a problem, back off on your effort and reestablish that blood flow to your gastrointestinal tract. Really, really important. Awesome. So I guess the, some of the top line takeaways for age groupers, and if they are see a, a race for next season or even for the this winter where they're going to run into a lot of heat, are um, you can do some heat adaption ahead of time, whatever environment you're in, if you have access to a sauna or a wet sauna. Um, there are some sort of inexpensive protocols that you can do in the race itself in terms of knowing which parts of your body cool the best, your palms, your feet, your forehead, making sure that you're taking on ice and water as you go through aid stations, cooling, putting it over your head, that wet skin cools 10 times better or multiple better anyway than dry skin. And the same with wind, obviously, anytime you're in wind. So some really good tips in there for things that all of us can do to make sure that as we approach hot races, we really have a thought out strategy instead of just going in thinking, oh, well, I've got three water bottles on the bike and that'll be fine. So no, I think those are some really good ideas for for all of us to utilize. So thanks. Yeah, and knowing the course in advance is really helpful, right? Knowing knowing if there's shade or not, if there's shaded areas and trying to stick to them. I mean, you can often see, depending on where you are, depending on what the – if you're in a very humid environment, shade will only – have so much of an effect. But like here in Colorado, shade has a huge effect. You can see 10, 15 degrees difference in the shade. Even in a humid environment, you can see a bit of a difference, but humidity will carry temperature through even shade. But uh, know your environment that you're racing in, because if you're racing in a humid environment, it means that Evaporation is not going to be as effective. You're going to have to you're going to have to look for other ways to cool yourself. That's where ice down the uniform is really helpful. Ice in your hands is really helpful. And know what the course looks like. If there's shade, find it. If there's areas where there's going to be a long gap between aid stations, plan those things out in advance. And just spending a little bit of time adapting to the expected temperatures and then planning a little putting a little thought into what the course looks like is, is are ways that you can really benefit and, and get a, get a leg up on competitors who haven't put that thought into it. So, yeah, I and think I guess the uh, one, it's been a struggle. Yeah. The one other thing that I would add to that is also just doing some temperature calculations as to when you're going to be on the course. I mean, if we look at 
racing in St. George last year. It was 32 degrees when we got out of the water, but it was 80 when we were on the run. I mean, massive difference. But And of course, we got on the run. There's no shade. It's pavement, et cetera. And also, there's a big difference between people who are going to lay down a 4.5-hour 70.3 or a 7-hour 70.3. They're going to be out there much further into the heat of the day and really thinking about what your run times will be, or sorry, what your race times will be and what temperatures is going to be across the course of your racing day. In addition to what you said about knowing the course, whether there's shade, whether there's wind, et cetera. Yeah. Hugely important. Just like everything else, right? Plan your race, race your plan, temperature control, nutrition. These are things that should be part of your race plan. Well, I think once again, a really great conversation, something that I think a lot of our listeners will benefit from. I always appreciate these discussions. I know that we have some really good topics coming up in the coming episodes. However, if you guys have something that you'd like to hear us talk about, a question, a burning question that you'd like us to answer, I hope that you'll send it to us so that we can consider it and look into it, get some research done and get you the answers. You could send questions to us either by email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com or you can go to the private facebook group for the tridoc podcast just search for it on uh, facebook answers the three very easy questions and i will grant you access you can include your question there and join the conversation juliet thank you so much once again for being here i look forward to the next time we talk on the medical mailbag thanks so much jeff My guest on the podcast today is Dylan Davison. Dylan is 38, a husband and a father of four. He lives in Charleston, South Carolina, and works as an account executive at a large software company. He came to triathlon in 2015 to get himself back into shape, and he really fell in love, like so many of us, with the sport. In 2018, he learned he had stomach cancer due to a rare genetic mutation that resulted in him having to have a total gastrectomy, which is a surgery wherein they remove the entirety of the stomach. It was a very difficult recovery for him, but he decided early on to not take life's challenges as setback, but rather as opportunities. And since then, he joined the board of No Stomach for Cancer, a nonprofit devoted to funding rare stomach cancer research and helping those affected by stomach cancer. This month, September, we are recording this on September 7th, he hopes to be the first Ironman, to his knowledge, to complete a full-distance triathlon without a stomach. He's racing Chattanooga on September the 24th. Additionally, he's using this race to inspire those affected by life's challenges and hopes to raise more than $10,000 for stomach cancer research. Dylan Davison, thanks for taking some time and joining me here on the TriDoc Podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Dylan, uh, I want to talk a lot about uh, the challenges that you faced, but tell me first, what, what got you to, to take up triathlon back in 2015? I remember in high school, I was always an athlete and I would mainly play football and baseball and ran cross country one year, which I enjoyed after I got in shape, of course. But as I got older, the weights in the weight room just seemed to get a little heavier than I remember and was getting out of shape. And so I thought, well, let me get back to my running roots. And I remember running my first 10 minute mile and thinking this GPS must be broken. And after testing many other apps, it still read 10 minutes a mile and I was extremely gassed. So I realized I had a lot of work to do. So in my running journey, just not a lot of 5Ks around that were interesting. So I'd heard about triathlon, had no swimming background, but figured I could ride a bike just like anybody. And there's a really fun sprint series here in Charleston, South Carolina. And so that was a really awesome introduction. So I did my first sprint triathlon in 2015 or so. And that really got the bug of, wow, this is little bit competitive. Some of these guys out here are crazy fast and it was a really fun experience. And I realized as soon as I was done, I, I could have changed so many things and gotten a lot faster. And so the competitive nature got me back into the sport. And ever since then, I've really enjoyed it. And before your diagnosis in 2018, what was the longest distance you had worked yourself up to? I did my first half Ironman. And I think it was in September or October of 2017. So it was a interesting experience because I just found out I had this gene mutation and that the recommendation was to have a total gastrectomy because they were pretty certain I had cancer. And I was able to finish that race knowing that my next 
three months were going to be completely wild and life-changing. And it was a really awesome experience crossing that finish line, realizing I'm going to get through this. I just did this 70.3, which is a really big challenge for me at the time. And I just remember thinking like, I'm going to come back here and do this again without a stomach someday. Oh, that's interesting. Cause that was going to be my next question. Uh, when you finished that race and later on in those three months, when you were going through really what is a, a pretty miserable recovery, that's a very big surgery. Did you ever kind of think to yourself, that's it. I, I'm not going to be able to, to come back and do this sport that I have so enjoyed. I did think that. So I, I'm a glass half full type of guy, very optimistic and positivity is one of my top five strengths on the strength finder test. If you find yourself so nerdy to do such a thing. And so never in my life have ever felt depressed or sad or feeling like didn't want to get off the couch. But to your point, a few weeks in after the surgery, I remember feeling like very super sad and unmotivated, just in pain and feeling like I'm never going to be active. I'm not going to be able to see my kids do cool things. I'm going to be the guy who's, I can't go do that type of stuff. And that was the moment that I remember thinking, what in the world is happening? This, this can't be who I am. So from that moment on, I've been on an uphill journey and hope to never have to revisit that valley because those were some dark days for sure. What was it in your mind that kind of made the shift for you? What, what was it that made you think, actually, no, I can do this and I'm going to do this? It's a little bit of a lengthy story, but I remember specifically... We have time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So, so when, you, you, when, you, when you don't have a stomach anymore, your body is receiving food and water in a, in a form that it's never received before because your stomach is like breaking the food down to this perfect mixture that goes into your intestines and whatnot. But the new way is my esophagus straight into my small intestines and it just, you know, has, it, it treats it almost like a foreign object, specifically water, ironically, because there's no nutrients in water. It doesn't know how to react often. And so there was this time, I want to say it was like two or three weeks in, it's pretty early. And you have to really sip on water in the beginning. Anyways, it was like, I had some ice water, it had melted. It was like the perfect consistency and temperature that you just come in after mowing the lawn and you just drink the whole thing. And I had this moment of just not thinking about it. And as soon as it hit my lips, I just take two big gulps and think, oh no, I'm not supposed to do that. What's about to happen? And within just a few short minutes, it was some of the worst cramps I've ever had in my life. And, and I was texting a buddy who had had this procedure done, who was kind of like my mentor. And I'm like, I have to have a bowel obstruction. Like this pain is just so intense. I couldn't breathe very well. And he was just like pretty certain you broke the golden rule. Like you, you drank too fast, too quickly. And then about three hours later, the pain went away, like just one minute you're breathing, feeling like I'm going to go to the hospital. And the next minute you're like, what? The pain is completely gone. I feel amazing. But I was at that point, I was like, I'm never doing that again. So I literally had a notebook and I took teaspoons of water and every minute I would take a teaspoon of water. And I did that for over an hour and it added up to being a, basically a little over a glass of water. And I was feeling great. And I was like, this is the recipe. Like I will literally do this until I can feel better again. And then I was like, well, if I could do this, then I'm going to go to the gym and walk on the treadmill. Cause it was in the, it was like January of 2018 in Charleston, South Carolina. It, it does get cold from time to time, but it happened to be pretty cold and I had lost all this weight and it was just going outside was brutal. So I would go to the gym and walk on the treadmill extremely slowly. So I would just, every day I would go there and walk a mile next day, a mile and a quarter and I was taking the similar approach of a teaspoon of water every minute. To, I'm just going to add on a couple minutes to the treadmill to the point where I was like, wow, I just walked five miles today and I feel pretty good. And then I found out I add a little incline, add a little bit of speed to like, I remember four weeks in, I'm like speed walking on this treadmill with an incline. I'm sure I looked hilarious, but in my mind, I was having this major victory of I could almost jog right here. Um, and I would start to sweat a little bit. And then I would notice like, oh, when I sweat, I actually can take on water way better. It was something about like my body is ready for it. Maybe I don't know the science behind it. Also, a lot of people will add electrolytes to your water because then your intestines accepts it quicker versus this tasteless substance of nothing. And it doesn't know what to do. So once I kind of discovered like there's a electrolyte powder I liked, I can drink it quicker. I'm on the treadmill. 
at that six week mark, I'm emailing my doctor and I'm like, Hey, I really want to go for a jog. And he's like, well, if you fill up for it, you can. So I remember jogging a mile and I think I walked a couple of times during it. But when my, when my like watch hit that mile mark and I was like, I just jogged a mile six weeks after losing a stomach, like I'm ready just to go. And I've never really looked back since. So I love that story. I love, I love the notion of adding a teaspoon to every time you do it and just having that translate to the distance and the the speed and everything else, because it, it it's, I tell my athletes all the time as I'm coaching them, I'm like, you can do bigger and longer and faster if you just don't think about it as the end result, but instead compartmentalize it and segment it into little bits and pieces exactly the way you did. And uh, I just love that story. It's so great. Now, I, I think you've really hit on what I'm sure many people, I know myself, are, are, are wondering, which is how do you manage nutrition? Never mind for a race, but just on a daily basis. You don't have a stomach, so clearly you you have to your stomach is a is a major part of the digestive tract. There's certainly things that come into your mouth. They have to be broken down, as you said. The stomach plays a big role. You you now don't have that part. So what's your nutrition like for your day-to-day life? Never. Well, we'll talk about racing in a second and training, yeah. but, but what, what do you, how do you, what are your, are, are there limitations or, or how have you had to modify what and how you eat? So I get this question a lot. And when, and when I start to tell my story about what I can do, my wife always laughs and she gets way more high maintenance than, than I, than I describe it. But it, 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 to me, it's, it's very simple because there are some rules that I have to follow. But in short, first, it's different for everybody. That's one thing that's really, I think, so difficult about this journey. And whenever I talk to people who like get diagnosed with cancer or maybe they're a couple years out from losing their stomach, they tell me their struggles. And what they struggle with, so different than what I struggle with. I've actually had family members that have had stomach cancer, had to have their stomach removed as well. And their journey is way different. So that's one thing that's really surprising to me. You would think like removing the organ, your recovery, everything's going to be similar. And it's so wildly different. But for me specifically, the general rules to get by is eat smaller meals, eat more frequently. And then where it gets really specialized for me is is I do way better on a higher protein and fat diet than I do with carbs because carbs can make me have some hypoglycemic interactions. My blood sugar can go pretty crazy, which isn't unique to people who don't have stomachs, but some people can be fine. Like I know people who are like eating ice cream frequently. And that would not be a good situation for me most of the time. And then outside of that, what, what makes it a little bit trickier is I, I have celiac disease, which they found during the, all the tests to find out what kind of cancer it was. And if it had spread, blah, blah, they were like, you also have celiac, celiac disease. So I'm allergic to gluten and shellfish. So when I go to restaurants, that's really the pickle. Cause like I can, I can, if I order a steak, for example, I'll just eat half the steak or my wife and I will split it. Like we're cheap dates now, which is great. Cause we would feel better splitting a meal than overeating before clearly and, and certainly after, but, but also the gluten scenario is kind of dramatic because if the gluten actually inflames your intestines, that's usually where the reaction happens. And so because I don't have a stomach, it hits really hard and hit really fast at times. So that's kind of the, the, the real hurdle I have to work with to be really up and honest Otherwise, it's just don't overeat. That's kind of the tricky thing. Is it's five years later, I can I don't want to brag, but I can eat two pieces of pizza, whereas, whereas before I was cutting it in half. So I, I have gotten more real estate down there, if you will. But the best way to go about it, and I feel my best, is like frequent small meals, higher protein, high fat. And now that I'm actually training for the Ironman, I do add in a lot of protein shakes, which before those can get dangerous because you can just drink them a lot faster than you might realize. And that can cause a lot of discomfort. But now that I'm five years out, I, I feel like I can, I, especially if I'm you know, riding a hundred miles on a Saturday, I can have 80 grams of protein in the next 45 minutes and my body's like dying for it. And I don't have any issues. I couldn't imagine doing that the first year. 
Okay, so you, you are more high maintenance than you let on because of all of those restrictions. I'm just going to say that. So you don't have a stomach. You don't have any way to store anything you eat. That's why you have to eat more frequently in smaller amounts. We're going to come back to that and training because obviously that's a huge deal. The fact that you have to subsist so much on protein and fat is super interesting because as I have spoken about on this podcast many times, carbohydrates are definitely the preferred fuel for endurance sports. So it'll be interesting to hear how that plays out for you. All right, well, let's shift the focus to what uh, I really want to talk about, which is uh, how you fuel for training and certainly for this race that's coming up, Ironman Chattanooga. How do you fuel? How are you able to make sure that you're getting in enough calories over the course of what's going to be, I assume, anywhere from 10 to a 16-hour race? And how are you doing that when you're having to take mostly protein? Yeah, so it's I don't I can't really explain it. Most of what I described on my daily diet does not apply to what I'm training, which is weird to me. I've thought about trying the keto route, but it just seems I don't know. Anyways, never have. So what's what's strange, and maybe you can explain this, or maybe it makes sense. Is this is how it makes sense to me at least? Whenever I start to exercise my body is craving these nutrients and it's almost kind of like my insides warm up to the idea of digesting carbs quickly. And I use that energy stores faster. And so I don't have hypoglycemic issues. I have had a couple on the bike during training. That was because I was probably pushing it a little harder. But what I found early on is like when I would go running, I could eat, I could drink a Gatorade G2, which is like half the sugar. It's like 16 grams of carbs and I would feel fine. But if I was sitting on the couch and I wake up or I, I wake up in the morning, I sit on the couch and I drink a little bit of Gatorade, it would feel discomfort. Like I would be like, Ooh, that feels like I had too much or something's happening. It's not feeling great. So there's some type of weird correlation when I'm exercising. I just take carbs a lot easier. So what I have found in my training is specifically on the bike and on the run, I'm consuming and again, this is different for everybody, but this has worked for me, thankfully. I'm excited about seeing how Chattanooga goes. But ar- around 32 to 48 ounces of liquid, and I usually put an electrolyte tablet in there, and then two to three gels an hour. So that ends up being like I'm in the 50 to 70 range of carbs, and then 36 to 48 ounces of water. It seems like the water intake is a little higher than usual, but I do have a legitimate phobia of dehydrating. I've, I've gone on two backpacking, or backpacking trips in Arkansas with my buddies and they make fun of me because they're like, I'm like, when are we going to get to the river? And they're like, we're going to be there by the night, chill out. And I'm like, if I run out of water and die, my wife's going to be really ticked off. But to your point, like I, generally people that don't have stomachs are, are way easier to get dehydrated because they can't store the water as well. I have a really high sweat rate already. So I feel like the water just leaks out of me. And so I overhydrate. I always add electrolyte tablets and I usually feel great doing that. And then I kind of switch between Goo Brand, just the straight up Goo Brand. They have a good one. Triberry is my favorite. And then Precision, Precision Fuel. I know that that's kind of like the pricey one, but I have really liked the taste of it and they, they work really well. So I kind of store those two on the bike and I'll, I'll throw in like a wafer around two hour, two hours in or so. But so far in my training rides and my runs, that has been that has worked for me. I've heard a lot of friends. I have a couple of buddies. I ran a marathon with a stomachless guy a few years ago and he's, I could never do gels. He only does like powders and water. And so I've done that in the past. To me though, it's just so annoying. Like when you're sweaty and you're trying to mix your potions in a race, it just is frustrating. So I was always trying to go the gel route and I just kind of worked my way up to being like, wow, this works. I can hit a gel. I can drink some water and keep pedaling, keep running. And it's just so much more convenient. So that's that's how I've arrived at my nutrition strategy. It's really interesting. Uh, I've talked on this program a few times about the different problems that triathletes face with their gastrointestinal tract during these long events. One of them is delays in gastric emptying, which can lead to nausea and vomiting and a, a inability to take in enough fuel. You obviously aren't facing any of that because you don't have a stomach. 
Another problem, though, is you can have a lot of uh, intestinal bloating and diarrhea because you get a lot of sugars in the intestines. And if you're decreasing blood flow to the intestines, you don't absorb those sugars quite as well. And so you end up pulling a lot of water into the intestines. I would imagine that's something that you probably face more than the average athlete. So how have you, or first of all, have you faced that issue? And second of all, if you do, how do you kind of monitor it and make sure that you don't run into that problem? And if you do run into it, what can you do about it? Yeah. So I, I haven't had, maybe there's only been one or two episodes where I had to cut my training short and use the bathroom and it wasn't a very good experience. And I don't know exactly what triggered it. It was one of those times where maybe I had some storage that I needed to get rid of before the training and I didn't do it. Non-training though, the example that you gave water rushes into your intestines and I have to run to the bathroom. I mean, so the stomachless people would say that's dumping syndrome, which it sounds like it's the same thing you're talking about. And that's really unpleasant. And yes, if I overeat, that is one of the most common side effects and that's not good. So I try to go hyperbolic on this stuff because maybe it's back to the whole teaspoon example, but, but I'll travel for work and I'll have a client presentation from nine to two. So if I screw up my breakfast and I'm at risk of running to the bathroom, it would be pretty embarrassing. And so I'll generally just not eat that morning and I will never notice it because you, well, you don't have a stomach. You don't really get food cravings very often. And I just kind of go in this like fasting state where I'm like kind of like intermittent fasting, but you're never really hungry. You're just like busy. It's probably not the best thing because I, I could potentially get in a situation where if I don't eat by five or six o'clock, I could probably have some energy issues. But I am definitely, I have major fear of having to run to the toilet in the middle of a client presentation. And so that's another reason why I try to keep my meals very small and consistent. I, if I do get in trouble, it's usually at night. It's relax mode, kids are in bed. I'm going to veg out and I'll eat something, eat way too much. And then I'll say, oh, probably shouldn't have done that. But thankfully, I haven't had that experience on the bike or the run. And the only thing I can think of, the only time I had an issue where I thought I was going to throw up and pass out at the same time, and I think my blood sugar was off the charts. There's those articles I'm sure you've heard of, oh, this person does 90 carbs an hour, or this person does 120 carbs an hour. And there's like this race to the top, whatever. But my triathlon coach was 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 like, listen, 70, you're kind of in the sweet spot. If you drop to 50, you're probably fine. If you go to 90, you're probably fine. But 70s should be roughly a target. And so that simplified the approach. And I usually try to just kind of stay pretty every 20 minutes, hit a gel, and I get close to 70. Well, you're heading into your first Ironman, your first full Ironman. What are your, what, what are your goals for that day? That's coming up very shortly. Yeah. So my real goal is just to finish and have fun, have a good adventure, as I would say, just because if I get to, I have some thoughts about times, but I don't want to get too competitive and blow my race up. Have you ever raced Chattanooga by chance? I've done the half. I have not done okay. the full. I've done, my, I've done nine fulls, but not Chattanooga. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah, I've talked to people that have done the Chattanooga and, and they say it's a great race, but there's a couple of traps in the bike and on the run, the notorious Barton Ave, which is a pretty steep hill apparently on the run. So my thought is I'm sure the swim, I just have a very slow, steady swim pace. So I'm sure the swim will just be the swim. And the bike here in Charleston, we don't have any hills at all. And Chattanooga is rolling hills. So that'll be interesting to see how everything fares. And then the run, I love running. So the trick there will just not to be go out. Like, I can't go out too fast, which I know I'll want, I will definitely want to. But I think if I can just not blow up on any of them, I'll have a really awesome experience. My goal is to be in like the 13-hour range, plus or minus. And so, yeah, that, that's kind of my expectations. Well, my best advice is to savor that finish line shoot because you only get to finish your first Ironman once. So definitely enjoy that. I want to finish uh, the conversation just uh, by hearing a little bit about the No Stomach for Cancer uh, nonprofit that you're involved in. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what they do? Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks for asking. So when I found out I had this gene mutation, I had never heard of it and neither had my local doctor. And so when I Google the CDH1 gene mutation, this organization called No Summit for Cancer popped up. And it's a very small nonprofit with one employee. 
But it was founded by uh, a lovely lady named Karen, and she found out her family had this genetic condition, and she wanted to have resources to help those affected by stomach cancer. And so she created No Stomach for Cancer a little over a decade ago. But at the time, whenever I had learned about this, I just reached out, not thinking that anything would happen. I find out No Stomach for Cancer. I go to the website. I send Karen an email. She's like calling me within an hour, helping me one-on-one support. It was just, it was extraordinary. It's just what I needed because uh, we were navigating a bunch of family questions at that point. So she really helped me through that, helped me find an expert at Memorial Sloan Kettering, had a really great experience and kind of put me under her wing. And so once I survived and I connected with several other people who had had a procedure like this before me and they were, they were amazing. And it was the personal stories that really inspired me to go and have the procedure and then live a good life afterwards. One of the guys who mentored me said, on those days that really sucks, your kids are going to be watching. And someday they have a 50% chance of this happening as well. And you want to be an example. So if they happen to go down this journey, they're going to know, hey, they're, no big deal. Their dad did this. But if you sit on the couch and you whine and moan and make it look really bad, that's what they're going to remember. They're going to remember how bad it was. And that was a huge motivation for me of when it got bad. I was like, I got kids watching me. So try to put on a happy face. And one of the ways I could do that is I wanted to return the favor because he was so helpful for me. And so I reached out to know Summit for Cancer and said, hey, listen, I don't know if I can help at all, but you guys really helped me. So can I give back? And it ended up joining the board, which was really cool. Built a good relationship with the board chair at the time. Come to find out he was looking to resign. So within two years, I became the board chair and I've been there, I think now this is my fifth year. So... We're a small organization and we fund research, specifically the important research that doesn't get funded because rare cancers don't get funded very often because they're so rare and they impact such a small number of people. So organizations like No Center for Cancer will come in and fund research to help that move forward. And then we also connect with patients and caregivers all over the world to help them through their cancer journey. So that's what I do in my free time. And yeah, it's it's been really life-giving. And how far along are you with your fundraising efforts to get to $10,000 for Ironman Chattanooga? We are at 65%. So it's very exciting. It's really hit the ground running. It's been incredible seeing all the support, people sharing on social media, people from prior jobs and and people I haven't connected with in years joining the fundraising campaign has been extraordinary. So it's, it's been really amazing. Well, that's wonderful news, Dylan, and I will be happy to include a link to your fundraising website in the show notes and, of course, on the TriDoc Podcast Instagram feed as well as in my Facebook page for the TriDoc Podcast listeners. Dylan Davison, he is a soon-to-be Ironman, the first one, to our knowledge, to complete an Ironman without a stomach. He had a gastrectomy after being diagnosed with a rare form of stomach cancer, and he's doing so while raising money in order to support research through the organization No Stomach for Cancer. Dylan Davison, I can't thank you enough for joining me on the podcast today. Best of luck on your upcoming Ironman, which will be within a couple of days of this podcast airing. So all the best to you, and we will be watching and uh, following you along on the tracker. Thanks again for being here. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the TriDoc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at TriDocPodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. 
If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDark Podcast Facebook page, TriDark Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDark Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.